everyone, and welcome back to Give a Damn with Kate. I'm BB, and before we begin today, we'd like to preface this episode with a content warning. In this episode, we will be discussing stalking. We know that trauma is pervasive, its impact is deep, and this impact shapes the lives of folks impacted in various ways over time. Trauma can lie dormant and then can then surface in unexpected ways at moments that are also unexpected. If you choose to listen to this week's podcast episode, please ensure to prioritize your self-care and reach out to confidential resources if needed. CAPE's confidential advocacy team can be reached at 541-737-2030 or emailed at survivoradvocacy at oregonstate.edu. So for this episode, Miles is interviewing one of CAPE's lovely survivor advocates, Jocelyn, about her insights into stalking on college campuses, as well as resources available for survivors and bystander support. Hi, welcome to the Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here with you. So first, can we uh, start by having you explain what advocacy is and why someone experiencing stalking would want to access your services? Yeah, so advocacy looks many different ways, but uh, as my role in my role as a confidential advocate, advocacy, it looks like um, somebody who listens, supports, um, helps a person who might have undergone an experience of interpersonal or gender-based violence, find resources that support them um, through, through their healing journey, through their reporting journey, through their not reporting journey. Um, yeah, it looks many different ways. Uh, we always say there's no one right way to heal as a survivor. And um, so when we're being an advocate with somebody, we're encountering them at different states of their journey, whatever that looks like. Um, and we help them through, especially as a campus-based advocate, we help them through navigating systems here at the university. So that might be within academic things. It might be housing. It might be financial. Um, it might also be in their community, wherever they are. Uh, yeah. So you talked a little bit about specifically being an on-campus advocate. Can you speak a little bit to what stalking might specifically look like on a college campus? Yeah. So on a college campus, that might look some of the ways that we might think of a typical stalking situation, obviously, it might be somebody waiting outside of your classroom, following somebody to and from their car if they are living off campus and drive. It might look like somebody always being at a cafe that you frequent at a certain time. It, it might look like they are just always appear to be in the places that you yourself generally go to. But it also can look different. It, it might be something that is purely driven online. It might be that you are constantly under some sort of cyber surveillance or receiving messages from uh, different accounts. They might all stay, say similar things, but they might not appear to be the same person. This could also be called cyber stalking. Um, on campus, it might also look like somebody you know. And it might also look like a complete stranger. Um, there are instances, of course, of both. And so while, of course, um, a survivor, unfortunately, is then tasked with being the hypervigilant one of watching um, and looking over their shoulders, uh, there are many supports that exist within that 
realm that can help a survivor to take some of the burden off of their shoulders uh, to place it back in the community for that community care aspect that is so important. And then, so while we're talking about like what it may look like, what it might not look like, do you feel like there are any prominent misconceptions when it comes to stalking? Yeah, I think there, you know, one of the ones that comes to mind with that is that it's like the person in the ball cap or like the ski mask that is like lurking around a corner or in a bush. Um, You know, stalking cases, again, look very different, but um, sometimes it's somebody just sitting reading a book on a bench or somebody who appears to be enjoying their coffee. Um, It could be another student in a class. Um, And while I don't say any of this to try and make people become more on guard, I think there's a misconception that it's always an insidious sort of nefarious figure that doesn't appear to resemble anyone in our lives. And that's not true. Most stalking cases are committed by somebody known to the survivor. That's not to say all are. Many of them also are strangers um, targeting somebody specific. Thinking more about misconceptions, the languaging around stalking. Sometimes we use that language as sort of a, like, oh, I I stalked you on Facebook. Or... um, even somebody like, oh my gosh, are you stalking me? If you show up in places at the same time, it might be your best friend, um, just might be a colleague or somebody. And while like we ourselves in those moments are feeling safe or feeling secure, we know that we're not undergoing a stalking situation. I think it can lead to some of us minimizing and using language that minimizes a very real lived experience for many survivors. I think uh, recently looking at statistics from our colleagues, one in three women and one in eight men, male identified, female identified individuals will experience stalking at some point in time while on a college campus. So it's a very real experience uh, not to be minimized, not to be disregarded. So yeah, now that we're talking about that, um, let's say we had one of our listeners that maybe had a concern that they were in a stalking situation are there any next steps that you would recommend to take from that? Next steps can look very different. Um, some next steps might simply be to tell a friend that you think something is weird. You're seeing this person and they always seem to be at this one place at the same time and they're looking at me. It might look like reporting it to your university, to EOA here at Oregon State, Uh, It might look like talking with local law enforcement, especially if it's somebody you don't know. Uh, But it also, and and I will say this probably multiple times in this interview, um, reporting is not always the best option and never will you ever hear from an advocate that it's what you have to do, it's what you should do, it's what to do if it feels right. Um, But talking with an advocate, talking with a therapist, somebody who has ideas about resources that are going to support you An advocate's going to help with safety planning, talking about other options that might support your journeys physically to and from campus, to and from your classes. Um, A therapist, of course, is going to talk about some of the anxieties, the um, very real fear and trauma that results from being stalked, and talk about management strategies around that for emotional and mental health and well-being. 
And so as you're touching on campus resources, I know a question we get a lot are, are there any like support groups or places for survivors to go if they want to talk with some other survivors about what they've experienced? Yes, we have a few different places in our local Corvallis, Albany community that survivors can go to for support. One is the Circle of Support uh, support group <laughs> that is run by an advocate and a counselor, facilitated by, I should say. Um, here at Oregon State, it meets on Wednesdays from 3 to 4.30 via Zoom. So I know Zoom isn't always the best option for everybody, but it does tend to be the most accessible. People can join it from anywhere. Um, they never have to show their full name. They also can drop in. So it's not a every week you must be there kind of thing. Uh, additionally, groups uh, in the community such as Cardva has an in-person support group that meets weekly. And I believe it goes for about 10 weeks and then it shifts locations. And so it moves around from Corvallis to Albany to Philomath, a couple other spots, I think. Um, you can always call their hotline um, to find out the location and time. Uh, and I also believe there is a group out of Eugene called SAS, which um, the acronym escapes me what the meaning of it is, but you can Google SAS Eugene, S-A-S-S, -S, and they have a few support groups. They have a LGBTQ plus support group, and they also have a woman's support group, and they may have more. I know that they develop uh, several, and so their info for those support groups is on their website. And so I know you already started to touch on this earlier, but can you give us some examples of different ways that you could provide support to a survivor that's either currently being stalked or has been stalked in the past? In advocacy, providing support to a survivor who has is currently experiencing stalking might look a couple of different ways. First, of course, we're always going to check in and ask about current safety. Um, where you might be experiencing the stalking. Is it at your home? Is it at your place of work? Is it on campus? Is it in very specific locations, like a residence hall dining room, for example? Um, from there, we'll talk through options of what might be helpful. And so that might be looking into the Guardian app that the Department of Public Safety here at OSU provides. It's, it's sort of a real-time uh, location sharing between two trusted individuals, uh, which you can revoke at any time. There's also the safety escorts by calling the dispatch non-emergency line for Department of Public Safety. Uh, and there's also SafeRide, which is a SafeRide you can use via an app called SafeRide now through ASOSU, um, but provides free rides um, to and from campus and some town, in-town locations. Um, then we'll also talk about just what your network looks like as the survivor we are working with. So that might be talking about trusted friends, family, um, and how you might interact with them around this? Do you feel comfortable talking to them about your experience at the time? Because that's not always the case. Um, it looks like talking about buildings and hours that those buildings are open, places to duck into if you feel yourself being unsafe at that moment. Well, who's open at 10 o'clock at night? Okay, well, Dixon is open till 10, so they might be open still. Um, who's around at 11 o'clock in the morning? Well, our office is open at 11 o'clock in the morning, um, so you can pop in here. Uh, it looks like kind of building out a framework of knowledge about what safe resources are there 
uh, then after that, really getting into some of the details about whether or not this is something that is perhaps to be reported. In some cases, there's not a lot that can be done if the stalker isn't known. Um, then it's documenting every time you've seen them and where. Uh, and I would say that that's actually a pretty good practice if you find yourself um, in a stalking situation, documenting anything, such as unwanted gifts that show up in random places that you might find yourself, such as messages that get sent, such as um, journaling just about, I saw this person three days ago at, at the coffee shop, they were seated in this second table on the right, and I saw them again today. They were seated at the second table on the right. Um, they always watch me when I go and get my coffee. So making a kind of detailed list of what, what you're occurring, screenshots of emails, whatever it might be, phone calls, and putting them somewhere safe. And that might be that you have a friend or family member who you feel comfortable trusting that information with and sharing. It might be that your advocate, if you're talking with an advocate, they maintain that information until a time that it's needed to make a report. If the stalker is known, also too, it's considering if a report is what you'd like to do. Um, in some ways it can be very helpful um, and in some ways it can hurt more. Uh, so it's always up to, up to the individual. And then we talked a lot about what survivors can do to advocate for themselves, but we also know that there are other ways that we can support them. So let's say um, one of our listeners had a friend that disclosed a stalking situation to them. Um, do you have any recommendations for how to properly respond to the disclosure and also to continue to be a good advocate for their friend? This is such a good question. We all, I think, want to help our survivors in our communities um, to thrive. And I, I think so many of us come to it with, with so much uh, care, but also a lot of questions about how we can continue to help. And the first thing I would say is with that survivor, if they disclose to you, it's to remind them that you believe them and that you support them, that you care about their safety. Um, it might be that you also check in and ask, how are, are they safe right now? Um, and then having some of this knowledge yourself, like, oh yeah, I know about these advocacy services um, and they're called CAPE and I, you can contact them here. Here's their website form um, to make an appointment. But I also think it's important to remind allies and supporters of survivors that your safety matters too. Sometimes we can take it too far and try to getting unfortunately involved in the stalking situation. And I think it's important to also remember that, that your lack of safety doesn't mean more safety for somebody else. Um, I, you know, the, the term vigilante comes to mind a little bit. We don't want to become the uh, law, the quote unquote law enforcement without the badge. Um, we want to make sure that our safety as supporters is prized as well. And so if a person is in a very unsafe stalking situation, it might be that you're looking to help them find housing supports that are not your own specific home. So it might be looking at Cardva and their safe housing. It might be um, contacting or asking that survivor if they have family friends out of state, if it's something that they're trying to get away from. 
And then one more question. So you started talking about Cardva. Um, so outside of the OSU community, are there any other resources that you'd like to highlight or any other random things you'd like to give kudos to right now? Absolutely. Yeah. Cardva, the Center Against Rape and Domestic Violence, is our Corvallis community partners. 24-7 um, crisis line, safe housing, um, great advocacy program. We really love working with them. Um, of course, I mentioned SAS in Eugene, which isn't an advocacy, um, like a shelter per se, but it is a group of advocates that um, can support, provide support and resources. Um, additionally, one of the things that we've been very happy to be a part of is a growing network of advocates in the kind of mid, mid Willamette Valley region. And so we meet with advocates based out of LBCC and Western Oregon uh, University. Um, and I'm forgetting some of the other groups because we keep adding, but it's a great way to keep us all connected. Um, so that we're sharing resources continue, continually, and especially if we have students who take classes at several universities, community colleges um, in the area, it's nice that we're all connected as well. We can co-facilitate advocacy together so that the survivor feels more supported. Thank you so much for that. That was a really great interview, and I hope our listeners are able to use a lot of those resources if they need them. And a huge thank you to Jocelyn for taking the time to come and chat with us about such an important topic. We covered a lot of different resources today, so we're going to be linking them in the description for easy reference in case any of y'all need them. And be sure to stay tuned for more stalking prevention and awareness-focused content and events throughout the month. You can stay up to date on this content and the latest podcast episodes by following CAPE's Instagram at CAPE underscore OSU. Thank you all for joining us and giving a damn. We'll see you next time. Bye. A production of Oregon State University Student Health Services.